Welcome everyone to the Girls in Movement podcast, where we talk to founders and influencers from all over the world. We have an exciting round of guests for you all over the next few months, um, and today's guest is not short of some stories. This individual co-founded the first flash sales site, secretsales.com, back in 2007, which built into a multi-multi-million pound business uh, with over six million users. From a successful sale, this individual has not slowed down, starting a record label, starting a jewellery platform and everything in between. So without further ado, I welcome Sash Kukadia. Sash, welcome. How are you? Very well. Thank you for having me. No worries. So tell all of our listeners where you're based in the world today. So I was born and raised in North West London. Um, my parents uh, were immigrants from Kenya uh, and I'm now located in South West London. So I moved here to this part of town uh about 12 years ago and and only to improve the commute that i had to my office which was uh, at the time in notting hill and uh, just fall in love with this part of town i think my family members would probably hate me for coming south of the river but we're <laughs> we're here and uh it's beautiful love it okay so let's go back to the beginning because i think whenever someone probably interviews you or speaks to you it's always about kind of the the success that you've had which has been incredible but before secret sales what was the plan and what were you doing i mean i was always uh i would say my upbringing my parents gave me everything i wanted right it wasn't like i was uh you know i, I had a hard upbringing my, my parents worked really hard uh they were both from um relatively poor backgrounds but when they came to the uk um, you know, through various means, started companies and, um, you know, made and, and wanted to give us the life that they never could. Yeah. <clears throat> what that meant, however, was that, you know, I went to lots of like all these private schools and I, was, I was, had very strict upbringing and, you know, told to work, work, work all the time. And as a child, I was a little bit disruptive. I didn't really want to just work, work, work. And instead, I, I got myself into trouble selling newspapers at the age of nine years old and I was expelled from school as a result. Not that there's anything illegal in selling newspapers, but you know, it was just non-compliant with what the school was expecting. Um, you know, later in my teenage years, I started to run a pirate radio station, uh, and you know, that was for my love and and uh, affection towards music. And at the same time, we made a small business of it, which actually at the time was 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 quite fruitful. Um, and then sort of thereafter at university ran a promotional company uh, organizing student events and parties and that type of stuff. I went to uni in Manchester and that was a wonderful period of my life. However, you know, all of these things, whether it was the selling of papers or the, the radio station or even the, the events uh, planning business, no, I didn't need to do any of it, right? Like, you know, if, if I needed uh, money, my parents would have supported me. Yeah. But there was something inside that wanted to just try and do it. And, and it wasn't about being given it. I wanted to, I just wanted to, uh, to do things that I felt at the time was right. And it all ended up surrounding uh, sort of trying to, to make money. Um, and so I think it was sort of ingrained in me from a young age. But and my parents and all of my siblings are all entrepreneurs in their own right. And I think it was perhaps driven from a young age with our parents sort of echoing it time after time that you should work for yourself and you should start a business and that type of thing so um in the blood so to speak 
<laughs> love that and then talk to me about secret sales and how that started um because you co-found that with your brother right yeah so me and my brother were are very different so there's four of us all together i've got an older brother who's a year and eight months my my senior i've got a sister who's like my irish twin 11 months my junior and a younger brother who's five years younger still and um we all went to manchester my brother and i are completely different in terms of personality and uh that really boded well when it came to starting business but we were 22, I was six months out of university. We were constantly in Selfridges, sales shopping uh, on Boxing Day. And really we were trying to recreate that experience of being in Selfridges and trying to generate this fear of missing out, right? Like if you think about the psychology around what made me and my family go to Selfridges every Boxing Day was, you know, we, we enjoyed bagging a bargain. We, we enjoyed buying something at a discount because it made me feel like a smart customer. But equally, um, it was the enjoyment of like the discovery of, you know, going there and finding something and actually, you know, the highest point in that emotional journey is at the point where you're at the till and you're paying. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there was nothing like that back in 2006, 2007, you know, sales were really restricted. Um, you couldn't be on sale all the time because it just wasn't the norm. And I know it is now because of what's happened with, you know, with COVID and various other things like that, but it was definitely, um, uh, an opportunity that we saw and there was a company in France that we that we were inspired by and we and we launched this concept of flash sales and we were the first company in the UK uh, to bring this this model mm -hmm. and what it did was it offered customers discounted product to luxury and designer wear that they wouldn't usually see on sale and because it was time limited our sales only lasted for three or four days it generated this fear of missing out and you know people there'd be countdown timers on site and there'd be sub it, it, i wouldn't call it subliminal messages but it would make you think that actually things are going to sell out quicker than they actually are and what that did is it it created a virality like we went from you know our i remember our first year we wanted to to get thirty thousand people signed up to our site within 12 months i think we did that in about three and a half weeks oh wow so, oh, yeah it was, it was crazy and, you know, remember that the market landscape dynamics and everything were very different, you know, fashion, the fast fashion here in the UK and the way in which people consume, um, you know, fashion online is so different now than it was back then. But, you know, we offered something new. We offered something that, that people hadn't seen before. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. The whole journey of Secret Sales from, you know, the start to the end was a wonderful period of my life. I mean, we made a lot of mistakes and there were so many things that I would do differently, but equally, you know, there were uh, moments of high, right? Like we won so many awards and we were being interviewed on TV and, you know, we were judging for The Apprentice nice. uh, with Lord Alan Sugar. And there's so many things that, that we were asked to do, which I think looking back, I don't think I realized how fortunate we were and mm -hmm. how, amazing uh that part of our life was because it sort of just happened and it wasn't you know it wasn't something that we had really uh spent time thinking about the business just scaled and it was wonderful to see do you think if you did secret sales now you would have the same level of success i think if i did it now in this time with the current economic conditions and the way in which people behave i don't think it would have uh, i don't think it would uh, go as viral as it did back then and I tell you why is because um, there's a lot more competition. Uh, there's a lot more. You see, as I was saying before, back then, 
brands wouldn't just be on sale. They would be, be very restricted and they would want to control when they went on sale because for them, what's really important is protecting the brand integrity and protecting, you know, uh, the, the positioning of, of, of that brand, right? You don't spend millions of pounds like Armani might, for example, to then suddenly plaster that with a 70% off sale, right? Yeah. So, so what they try to do is they've always tried to be protected, particularly the more luxury you are, the more protective you are. And, you know, back then it was really protected, but, you know, times have changed. Brands ended up not selling as much as they thought. The only thing to then do is discount to try and, you know, generate more cash for the business. Otherwise, you end up tying up all your cash in stock. Uh, and there isn't a huge amount of options. And secret sales was a really good solution for them because a short, sharp sale that was only on for three or four days that generated a huge amount of interest in a short period of time was great because actually from a, from a, a branding point of view, there's no devaluation, right? There's, there, there's no point in time where the customer or, or as a brand, you're thinking, right, secret sales has just damaged my brand because by the time anyone sees a sale, the sale's ended. Yeah. Right? And so actually the brand is protected in full. They can manage and focus their attention on full price sales and instead, you know, we, we were able to, you know, be that only like exclusive site that offered things that you just wouldn't get else, uh, elsewhere. And it was just, it was just, you know, I think it was partly luck uh, and partly driven by, you know, Lehman's Brothers collapsed in 2008. Yeah. And I hate to say it, but that was really good for us because all of a sudden, like everyone's panicking and we've got people, these journalists writing things in like major, like newspapers talking about, well, Actually, there are sites like Secret Sales where you can actually still get all of your design wear, but pay pay a fraction of the price. And that, from our point of view, was really good. And do you find, so back in 2007, I mean, it's still a, a chunk of time ago, but tech platforms weren't a big thing then. But whereas now, you know, every product, every service, it's driven by some sort of technology behind it. Did you feel that that was your USP, that you were in the fashion space, but you were leveraging tech to connect the user to fast fashion brands? So we are not technically uh, competent. And by that, I mean, I'm not, I can't, I'm not an engineer. I can't yeah. code. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so when I started the business, tech was not even a part of it, right? It was just, we want to, we want to build a website mm. and we went, I remember we went to an agency in Marlebone and we explained to them what we want to do. And they were like, this is never going to work. And we were like, it doesn't matter, just build it. Yeah. And so they, so they made one iteration of it and um, it was nothing what we wanted. So I remember actually drawing on, on a piece of paper exactly what we wanted because yeah. that was how sort of like, that was how little knowledge I had on tech, right? It was like, I drew on a piece of paper for them to build. I didn't know about the stack. I didn't know about how, you know, how the back end needed to work. I didn't know about the processes from a fulfillment point of view, uh, you know, CRM or any of the components that is required for, for an e-com business. And, you know, we, we literally learned on the job, right? Yeah. As a 22 year old boy, having come out of university, you know, the theory that you learn at university, you can't really apply. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I, I, I struggle with with university is like, you learn all of this stuff, but you can never really then use it in real life because it's so theoretical. And I'm one of those people that I've always valued more practical experiences. Yeah. And I think from, from the, the current, um, you know, moment when we launched, and my brother too, by the way, is like, whilst he's more technically capable, he's still not a, 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 an engineer of sorts, right? Yeah. So, you know, we 
built a platform that was basic. And then what we did is we hired, we realized we needed like a shit hot engineer that could sort of hack our way through it. And so we found someone, his name was Dillian. Uh, he was from, uh, uh, where was he from? He was from the Eastern Bloc, right? Like super smart guy. Um, and he literally, like when we say make something, he just built it, right? Like, and he was just, he almost hacked. With like the first five years of Secret Sales, we hacked our way through it, right? And when I say hacked, I mean like literally, we didn't know how exactly to build it. So we just built a version of it. We te then tested it. And then, you know, we sort of built this wall made of sort of like, you know, clumps of, of code. And then realizing much later, you know, what we had done is we'd built a, a house of playing cards, right? Because the foundations were not strong enough to hold a business that was then turning over like, you know, 40, 50 million. Wow. And uh, we had many, many issues later down the line with like legacy problems of how we had built, uh, built the site and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but what we did realize was that there was a moment where technology was definitely, uh, you know, allowing us to achieve certain things that perhaps other businesses weren't able to do. And I'm not talking about just hosting short time limited sales, but, you know, the way in which we were able to test and learn the way in which we could like, you know, and, and even just to focus on that, for example, like we would serve, we would split test what the customers saw. So we would have two variations of the site and 50% would see one version, 50% would see the other version. And we would be able to then understand intrinsically what customers were doing and looking, looking at their behavior, where they bounced, where they clicked, where they're engaged. And then we would then, you know, take the winning version and then test on that. You know, you can't do that in a physical store. Right, or, or in, in, in other businesses. And that's where technology really started to play, like pave the way. And then from a personalization point of view, like one thing that we did at Secret Sales, which we were very good at, is we painted the picture of 20 different profiles of customer, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, we called, the main customer that we had was called Kate, right? She was like a 35 year old woman who was AB, AB1, lived in a city, typically London, um, you know, was affluent, was earning about 70K or more, um, you know, 50% uh, of these Kates had children, 50% didn't, but we're, we're, we always described her as the gatekeeper of her family. Like she wanted her husband to look good or she always wanted to look good. And if she had children and even the dog, the dog would need to look good, right? It was like, you know, that, that's the type of person Kate was. But we painted a, a profile of like 19 other people, you know, from, you know, the old teens to the men who sat within that. And we then uh, were able to track we built this data warehouse that tracked every single person that came onto our site. We were able to understand intrinsically what they did from, and it was anonymous. It wasn't like we were taking individual names. Yeah. We were able to see what people were doing. And we, I think in 2014, I think we tracked 350 million unique user journeys in wow. one year. Incredible. And then what we did is we then used that data to, we fed that into our CRM, so into our emails and how we communicated that. And we would then, we were sending out every day around three and a half million emails to three and a half million customers. Wow. But within that, there were 70,000 variations of email based on the behavior of these groups. Wow. And that was all automated. So that was sort of like, that was the types of stuff that we were able to do. And, you know, like I'm not clever enough to do that, right? Like myself, like <laughs> what we did is we had a lot of very smart people. I told them what we wanted to do. They yeah. told me how, what was the best way to do it. And, uh, and it was just like, you know, it was definitely something we were known for, for being the best at, at the time. But I think like things have moved on even further than that now. I think there are companies like Farfetch who are doing some yeah. just ridiculous things that we could never even, even think about.
And when you look back on the time you had, you talk about the early days and you made lots of mistakes. What would you say are, let's say, three mistakes that you look back on and think, shit, I wish we never did that or I, I would do that differently? Sure. I mean, we took investment from uh, a, a number of different VCs, like venture capital investors, uh, throughout the year. So over the period of like nine years, we raised around 24 million pounds, uh, of which 18 million of that was, was equity and then you know, the balance was on debt. Um, in the early days, we, we needed money, right? We needed to scale the company. And I put my parents' house on the line, borrowed some money from a bank to then start the company. And there's only so much personal risk that you can take, right? And also like, you know, putting my parents and exposing them more than I already had, like, you know, there's a limitation to that. So we needed to raise money. And I think one of the, the challenges that I made, and I wouldn't say it was a mistake, but it was definitely, it would be, it's something that I definitely think about more so now than I ever did, but is finding the right type of investor yeah. that's really going to help you scale because we needed money. So actually back then, like we, we picked the right partner, but actually that partner then ended up selling to eBay for $200 million. And so eBay then became our business partner within okay. the space of nine months of us partnering with this German group. And so like when we thought we had the right partner, we then ended up with eBay and eBay ended up being a really bad partner for us. And, you know, that then comes with its own challenges and the business was growing at such a massive rate that we were running out of money. And at one point I thought that we were gonna have to shut the business down because we didn't have enough cash in the company and there's all sorts of things. So, that, so that's one is I probably spent some time thinking about, um, finding the right business partner. Nice. The, the, the second thing I would do is I would hire much slower and I would fire much faster. I really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because one mistake I made is I hired fast. I was young back then, so I ended up hiring people that I liked rather than hiring people that were right for the job. <clears throat> and I think, um, I think there is a lesson in that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you have to go through it to really understand. And then... Um, the final, I think, takeaway for me uh, would be, I would, I would focus, I think times have changed, right? So like back then we were just talking about growth. Let's take over the world. Like we were burning genuinely, no word of a lie. We burned a quarter of a million pounds a month of cash for about six years. Oh right? Like that was, that was just how we, this is just what we were doing. Right. And there was no thought about profitability. It was like, let's just, spend money on marketing, let's grow, let's grow. And look, like the company was, you know, we went from zero to 15 million to 30 million to 50 million in the space of seven, eight years. And, you know, we were advertising on TV and we did stuff on radio and we would talk of the town and it was wonderful. But one of, one of the biggest regrets I make or made was not focusing more on profitability in the final three or four years of that journey. Because I think the valuation of my company would have been much higher had we been profitable. And it would have been very easy for us to do, right? All we needed to do is just shut the marketing down, like, you know, turn off marketing by 50%, yeah. maybe streamline some of the teams a bit, optimize, stop, stop hiring. Like we were very, very good at hiring early, yeah. which, which then meant that, you know, our OPEX was super heavy. Like my payroll every year was about 4.9 million pounds just to pay my staff. My God. Yeah. And so, and I'm thinking like, you know, I look back and I, I could have probably operated that business and saved two million pounds of that five million easily, easily. But I was just, 
there's vanity involved with some of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know big what I mean? Team, real yeah, success. Yeah, there's a big vanity. And, and, and you know, that I, I think I think I'm not in that place anymore. I think I would be consistent. That's good. And final question on a very big part of your life, which was this um organization. What was the moment that you thought I want to get out of this and sell it? You know, I have to be honest, I never wanted to. Oh, really? Oh wow. No, no, no. My brother did. And my investors were nine years in on a 10-year fund, which means that they needed to pull their money out, right? It wasn't even about how well the business was doing. It was about formality. So I was forced to sell the company. Oh, God. Yeah, no, it wasn't a choice. I was forced. And it was it was a very bad year to sell because, like, we thought we would sell ahead of Brexit. We didn't think Brexit would actually happen. But it did happen, and it happened in the final month of us planning to close. Oh, okay. And so when when it did happen, you know, the companies that we were planning to sell to pulled out within a few days of Brexit happening because they were strategic European uh, acquirers who were no longer interested in a in a UK uh, business, right? And we were then left with uh, a term sheet from a, a UK PE, which was still okay, but it wasn't the valuations of these other businesses. Yeah. And um, that was the deal that was on the table. And that was the deal that I was forced to take, regrettably. <laughs> so it wasn't, uh, it was definitely, and the thing is, like, you know, Secret Sales was my baby, right? Like, I, yeah. I yeah. lived and breathed that business every day for 10 years. And wow. uh, all I ever wanted was that company to be successful. Like, that for me was more important than the money. Yeah. And I look at it now and, you know, the chairman of, sorry, the CEO of ASOS who recently stepped down and took that company from 300 million to 4 billion. He's just joined Secret Sales as our uh, chairman. Wow. So to like, you know, and they've just raised, you know, another uh, round of funding on a 65 million pound valuation. And so it's sort of like, I think the new owners have like done what they needed to do to bring it back on track. And that makes me quite happy, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I really hope that, the business continues to, to succeed. And for me, um, you know, if I can turn around in 10 years time and point to that and be like, yeah, I started that, that would be, <laughs> that'd be very cool. I think you already can. You should be incredibly proud of what it, what oh, it you're was. Very sweet. <laughs> I, I, I always feel like we could have done so much more, but I think that's always the, the learning of how I um, so talk to me about what you're up to now. So I see that you launched a jewellery brand, which I think is very interesting because you're it's not just a jewellery brand from what I see. So that just launched in Selfridges. So tell the listeners about that and what came, what brought that idea about as well. Sure. So I sold Secret Sales uh, 2017. I bought it back in 2018 by an MBO from the PE company I sold it to. Oh, right. Okay. And, I sold, and then I sold it again in 2019. Right. Um, and then I took some time and I was always planning to take some time. Then COVID happened and like I was still trying to recalibrate. And at the height of COVID, when everything is nosediving and I'm talking about, you know, general day to day places where you would as a layman put your money. Yeah. You know, gold is skyrocketing, skyrocketing. Right. It's yeah. like, you know, it's trading at its highest value. And there was an opportunity that that we stumbled across, which uh allowed us to exploit the concept of investing into gold pure gold and pure platinum so we're talking about bullion but doing so that allows you to actually enjoy your investment and it's so therefore what you're buying is actually bullion but in the form of jewelry so so to put things into perspective when you buy 
gold, for example, from a big brand, without mentioning any names, um, you're typically buying an 18 karat uh, item of jewelry. Mm -hmm. So when you buy anything that's 18 karat, 42, uh, sorry, 25% of that is impure. When you buy 14 karat, 42% of that is impure. Oh, wow. So what you're purchasing is you're buying the brand, right? You're, you spend all these thousands of pounds on the brand name, whether it's a, you know, a bracelet or a ring from you know, the, these brands, but you don't think about underlying asset value, right? Yeah. Now, when you then couple that with you know, the decades and the generations of Indians and Chinese and Japanese who have put their money into gold and platinum, yeah. and have done right yeah. because you know it's a really safe place to put your money like gold is arguably the safest commodity to put your money and even putin before he invaded ukraine bought a shitload of of uh, of gold right like literally bought an incredible amount of gold right because that's the only thing that was going to like hold his economy up here's a fun fact where's gold from and platinum where, like where, 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 how is it made oh god see is gold from china maybe originally so gold and platinum neither of them are from earth okay okay it's not made on earth it landed on earth in a, in a colossal meteor shower four oh, wow. years ago yeah and it and so what the scientists think is that it's it's from exploding stars but they don't know for sure but what they do know is gold cannot be made like diamonds can be made by compressing air or not air uh there is a company compressing carbon from the air to make it which is why i said that but there is, uh, you know, it's not from minerals or not from compression or anything like that. Gold cannot be made, which is why it's finite, which is why it's valuable. Yeah. Also, in its purest form, it's antimicrobial and hyperallergenic, which means that bacteria can't survive on it. It also means that you, there's no allergies. So if you have, if you find yourself wearing jewelry and you find yourself getting allergies, like pure gold, pure platinum will not give you any allergy, right? right? And so the other thing is that these big brands don't want to make from pure gold because they, they want to make more money so they so they dilute it with impurities they then charge you a 1000 percent markup genuine 1000 percent markup on the cost of metal right and then they sell you this this item what we're doing uh is we've started a company called 7879 yeah 7879 are the are the atomic numbers for platinum and gold nice. and there's nothing else in our jewelry so there's nothing else in our name it's just 7879 and uh, what we're doing is we're giving you the highest form of gold and platinum, the purest form, which is the equivalent of bullion, but with a 30% mark a margin instead of 1000%. And that basically means that you're able to actually in real time, because the prices on our site are connected to the bullion market. So you're buying everything by weight, you're not buying it by price. Sure. And then all we're doing is we're, 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 then, we're then adding on our craftsmanship fee. And then that's the price you're buying it for. And then what you're able to do is you're able to track in real time the value of your jewelry so oh. you can see on on a graph like stocks and shares how yeah. your ring is performing or how your necklace is performing and whenever you want because the price of gold always goes up over time platinum also is linear you can just hold on to it for as long as you want and if at any point you decide that you want to sell it back to us you press sell and we will guarantee to buy it back for the prevailing price of metal so what that means is that you can actually wear your jewelry you can enjoy it and you can actually profit from it if you sell it at the right time and we offer a lifetime guarantee. Obviously, the whole the hypoallergenic and antimicrobial pieces are a big factor. Um, and, you know, more, more importantly, you know, when it comes to even design and things like that, like we're not just putting our finger in the air and saying, well, this is what we think is going to work. Yeah. You know, we, we gathered data from all of the big brands. We were able to understand intrinsically by line what was selling and in what volume. 
and we then based our designs on the best sellers of other brands and we obviously are not infringing on any trademarks or any de de design patents or anything like that not but there's no patent for design but like like there's nothing that all we all we've done is we've uh created our versions of those rings and we've tried to keep everything really classical uh and actually we're very pleased you know the the, the results of the business so we started trading in november uh month one was like 20k month five was 130,000. wow well done and, and so we're already trading at like more than a 1.6 million pound run rate by month six nice. um we went into selfridges in in month five and that was an amazing experience but we even did 70,000 pounds worth of sales in three and a half weeks at selfridges nice. so that was like an incredible eye-opening experience for me because I was there every day talking to customers and learning about what it is that they're doing and what actually what is it about 7879 that they're liking and there was a, there was a clear light bulb moment at the point when I was telling them about the portfolio where you sort of just look in their face they're like wow this is unbelievable and you know we had some incredible sales come through and you know we're now talking to them again about going back in there um, but the business has just closed uh, a large seed and we're now uh, very much planning to scale. So the and we're going to be on the tube uh, in July and nice. August. Good, well done. <laughs> yes, on the underground, we're going to have some nice. Uh, I call it nice. We're going to have some advertising on the tube. We'll see if it works. I'm yeah. looking at, <laughs> at least this time you're measuring it, seeing if the marketing works. We're, we're going to measure it exactly. <laughs> I mean, listen, we actually measured it all the time with the TV and stuff as well, but um, we never did tube card panels uh, on with secret sales, and I'm. I'm uh, adamant that there is, uh, you know, there's a long dwell time on the tube, right? Yeah. It's around seven yeah. minutes, and people are just looking around. And I feel like if you can, if you can get someone to just absorb that that one advert, yeah, you know, I, th I, I feel, think from awareness point. I feel like with your this brand as well, like coming from a South Asian background your gold is like the gift that's given to you on your birthdays weddings whatever but it's gold that you never wear and when I saw what you guys were doing it's definitely something interesting because it's what your parents your grandparents already said always say it's an investment it's an investment but you're like I can never wear my investment because you're like I would never wear that out whereas when I saw what you guys were doing I was like oh that's it's interesting because you want to track okay how much is it worth now gold is like up here at the moment so totally, totally. and the thing is right is that Asian cultures when you go and buy Indian jewelry from wherever you buy it from, right? One one thing that I learned is you're buying 22 karat gold. You're not buying 24 karat gold. And yeah. the reason why you can't buy 24 karat gold is because it's illegal to export pure gold from India because it's linked to money laundering. Oh, okay. So at the 22 karat, what what you know the typical Indian impurity is an impurity that is actually making the the gold more orange, which is why it has this Indian. Uh, Indian gold looks like Indian gold, but that's not the true color of gold. Um, what they then do is they, they weigh it, right? And they charge you based on the gram, the spot price of gold. But because it's not even pure gold, there's a margin on that side. They then, they then charge you a labor charge, whatever that may be. And that's discretionary, right? It might be 40, 50, 60%. Yeah. And, then, and then no Indian family really knows how, how much money they're ever going to make back from that because no one ever sells it. Yeah. Right, but I can guarantee that if you decide to sell that jewelry, they're not going to buy it back at spot price, so it'll be spot price minus. Yeah, right. So then yeah. you're going to lose on that side as well. Whereas with 7879, it is governed by an international bullion market. You can see it on in real time on our site, or you can just wear your jewelry, check on Google what the price is, and that's the price we're going to buy, buy it back for. There's no ambiguity. And for the first time, you can actually like trade it, like really trade it. And what we're trying to do 
is almost gamify the consumer journey a little bit and make it a little bit more fun. You're not yes. going to become a millionaire by shopping at 7879. But what <laughs> you will do is you'll potentially have some fun with it and you'll and you'll maybe, you know, be able to enjoy your item of jewelry without losing any money. It almost becomes like a rental service, if you know what I mean. Yeah, You're no. just paying a small fee to wear it, which is which is the craftsmanship fee. And then you keep buying and selling and upgrading as you go. Nice. Love that. And talk to me about your plans for the rest of the year, because obviously you've got even just a record label on the side as well. But is 7879 sort of your baby for the rest of this year in terms of what you're focused on at the moment? So 7879 is my focus full stop. Uh, I'm, I'm spending like 95% of my time on that. Nice. Um, you know, we have a record label that um, we have a team of people that are really committed um, to supporting that. And, um, you know, we're fortunate enough to have done some recent deals with like Sony and a few other people. Oh, so, like, you know, we're, and, you know, Bambi's just performed at Glastonbury. And she yeah, I saw that. Well stuff. done to her. Amazing. I mean, you know, it, it feels like that's moving in the right direction. And let's see what happens, right? I think the challenge for me as a business owner is it's very hard to scientifically provide any forecast with an, a business that's driven through emotion, right? Music is very emotional. Yeah. So what sounds good to you might not sound good to me. But like, and when I compare that to 7879, I've got underlying data that allows me to know that if I buy this chain, yeah. I'm, I know I'm going to sell it based <laughs> on the velocity of the last few months. I can yeah. almost guarantee I'm going to sell that, you know, at, at this level or more moving forward. And so you build like a propensity model that allows you to forecast with music, I can't do anything like that. I just don't know how well it's going to perform. Yeah. So, you know, what's great is that, you know, Bambi and the team are building and making music that they enjoy, where we've created a structure that allows us to own and distribute the music uh, ourselves so that we don't have to necessarily tie into a big label. Although we would, we would and are talking to people. So like we would absolutely, you know, partner up if there was an opportunity. But, you know, what we don't want to do is... Um, you know, enter the world where an artist signs their life away and then never makes any money. Like yeah. that's not that's yeah. not what we want to do. And so I'm trying to give Bambi and her team a bit more control. And so my job is to just like, I give them the structure, I put in place uh, the teams and I try not to be too involved in the creative process. I try, I once they've made a song, I'll then do my job and I'll get it out there and I'll do all the marketing and all of that stuff. But like, it's really therapeutic for me. The music side is like, it's really nice. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like to, to focus on numbers and looking at spreadsheets and, and that all the time to then you know, like listening to music that they've just created. It's, yeah. really nice. it's very emotional. And it was very emotional for me watching Bambi perform. It always is when wow. I watch this thing. It's, it's a wonderful thing for me as a, as a husband. I, I'm still getting used to saying husband. Yeah, I was going to say that must be felt so weird. Just recently. Weird. Word. <laughs> yeah, no, it really is. But it's a wonderful thing for me. I really enjoy it. And it's quite sentimental. Like even when she's doing small intimate gigs or whether they're large Glastonbury ones, like I'm, I'm like the proud husband in the back, just like with a nice. massive smile on his face. It's nice. Well, I mean, even just, uh, you know, love love and hate to bring it up, but South Asian representation at Glastonbury, it's just like, it's incredible. Like, when did you yeah, think? Well, you know what, I think, yeah, it's, it's nice to be recognised. And, you know, Bambi's very marketable, right? It's, yeah. uh, it's just, we need the right music. And I think we need, and I don't think we have, we're working and we're definitely moving in that direction, but we haven't, I don't believe we've had that hit yet. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's coming. Good. So let's see. Let's see. And we can only wishfully hope. 
<laughs> and final question from me, which I ask all of my guests is, if you could give your younger self any advice, what would it be? You know what, it's funny because I, ask, I get asked this question a lot and I feel like my answer changes every time because it's, it's not such a straightforward response where I can be like, okay, I would change this in my upbringing and I would, I, I would you know, but I think one thing, um, I was very distracted as, as, a, as a boy trying to do things that I shouldn't be doing, right? And I mentioned that at the start of this interview. And I think if I was to... I see how certain people are and how, you know, how certain behaviors can really mold you as a person. And I feel like, you know, the younger years are, are super important in, in helping one person get there. And I feel like I could have just, I think I, you know, I could probably have just been a better child, a better, a better teenager and listen to my parents a bit more because actually everything they were saying was always right. Like genuinely, it was, they were always completely right. And you never realize it at the time because all you want to do is go out and be with your friends and you know yeah. like all of that stuff and i feel you know I'm, i i don't look back with any regrets but there were certain things that i've done in my life that i think you know i definitely gave my mom and my dad a hard time and, <laughs> and I, I regret that like i regret making them you know I, there were moments where i'm sure they wanted to strangle me and um <laughs> uh and unfortunately they didn't but like i just feel like i could have been a better human um, but you have to go through it, you know. I think the reason why I'm also here is because <clears throat> I've always done what I wanted, how I wanted to do it. I've never really taken anyone's view or any guidance, and uh, I don't feel like I, I ever will. Like I will always ask for direction. I will always ask for help and support where I don't, where I don't know or, or where I need it. But I've never felt lost in the sense where I don't know what to do. I've always just been like, that's what I'm going to do, and that's what I'm going to, and nothing's going to get in the way of that. And I think that's a good point and a bad point for me. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure if that's the right answer that your, your listeners will want to hear, but uh, <laughs> it, let's see. Let's see. I mean, listen, you know what? I'm probably going to get punished. I'm going to have children who are going to be disobedient <laughs> and I'm going to be like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be shaking my, my head in my hands. But anywho. Sash, thank you so much um, for an incredible interview. And thank you for anyone who's listening right now. You can download on Spotify, catch up on iTunes as well. And we'll also stick this on to YouTube. But Sash, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Hope to stay in touch.